Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're going to be talking about the basics of asset protection, and we're lucky to have Ike Devji on. He is a prominent attorney in the asset protection field and based in Arizona. He writes and speaks widely on the topic, and he has some definite opinions on what people can do to keep their assets safe in a tough litigation environment and in a post-COVID world. Ike, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me today. Asset protection. There are all sorts of different sort of themes that roll around in that and different tactics that people can use. But help frame for us a little bit what people should be thinking about in terms of the dangers to wealth. I talked a little bit about it in my book. And one of the chief things that I talked about was the idea that there are predators out there, whether through litigation or through other means, who see big pots of money and a way to attack it. What are you seeing in your practice? We certainly see that as well. There are two different skill sets. One is making money. The other one is keeping money. And I know you've written extensively on that as well. (laughs) Right. And so we do see that. And unfortunately, what we see is that people put a lot of time and effort into building a business or becoming excellent in their profession and achieving professionally and financially. They will often put time into looking at how to turn those nickels into dimes by working with financial professionals so their wealth is growing and working for them. And they will often spend a little bit of time, if we're lucky, doing some estate planning, the death planning portion. But a very small, either well-advised or better informed subset of the most successful people in America actually take proactive steps to protect their wealth and make sure they never take a step backwards. We see this a lot where people have been very successful and they've accumulated significant assets, but those assets, for instance, are all in their own name, or they're not insured properly, or there hasn't been appropriate risk management to keep those assets out of harm's way in the first place. So those are some of the things that we commonly see. One of the things that I find most people have a real hard time getting their arms around is identifying risks. Many times it's not the obvious things that you know about that you protect against, but it's the non-obvious things. For instance, parents who go away for the weekend and their kids have a party and someone slips and falls and cracks their head open and then all of a sudden they're liable. Or the dentist who works on an elderly patient who goes home and dies of a heart attack that's unrelated, but the dentist gets pulled into the litigation because they're either a deep pocket or there may be some tangential causation that they're trying to prove. How do you lead people through that risk management discussion? You can't insure against everything, but there are some things you should be able to keep your eye on. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that question up. I often describe this condition, if you will, as risk myopia. If you're a doctor, for instance, your only concern is a medical malpractice claim. If you're a builder, you're worried about a construction defect claim. If you own a trucking company or a transport company, you are concerned about some sort of catastrophic accident. And you rightly should be. For instance, the average national medical malpractice award, where it actually goes to a lawsuit, is about $3.9 million, or 400% of the average doctor's medical malpractice coverage. Most physicians carry a million. 
if we're using doctors as an easy, low-hanging fruit example of people who have liability. But you point out something very important, which is that risk management and asset protection planning do need to be holistic and the thinking of clients and their advisors should be 360 degree protection. So as we said, the doctor is only worried or mostly worried about the med mal claim. But when I walk people through a list of common questions and risk factors, they are often surprised how many of the risk factors on my very basic list they actually have. So some of them are very specific and perhaps slightly more exotic. And some of them are very, very basic. I mean, think about some of my most basic questions. Do you own a home? Do you drive a car? Do you own a business? Do you have employment law liability or employee lawsuit liability as a result of owning that business, for instance? Are you a board member, officer, or director of a public or private business? Do you have D&O, directors and officers liability for what you do, or, and that can be professionally, or it can be based on service. Do you serve on the board of a charity or a school or a private foundation? All of those things carry significant liability. All of those things are on my risk factor when I go through things with my own clients these are questions I ask. Do you have professional liability? Ian, do you have, whether it's medical malpractice or some other professional malpractice liability, do you own assets that generate internal liability? You and I both understand very clearly, for instance, the power of income producing real estate as an investment asset. But that real estate needs to be held in a way where it is protected from its owner and its owner is protected from the asset's internal liability if somebody is injured at your property. What about the risk of simply being perceived to hold substantial wealth? As a fellow attorney, Frazier, you know that there are two types of people that don't get sued, or at least not pursued aggressively. People who don't have any money and people who have money that can't be reached. But there are also people who are targets because they are perceived to hold significant wealth. And that could be because they're visible, they're a professional athlete, they're a C-level, they're a business owner, they're a doctor whose name and face is in every glossy magazine in your town, every local magazine, your New York lifestyle, your Scottsdale glamour, whatever it is. We've all seen the same ads with that high-end dentist or plastic surgeon. Those people are easily identifiable. If your wealth is Googleable you should think about what people think about you and what they know about you and what you've done to protect yourself. And here's one of the biggest ones. How about folks who are selling a business and replacing a recurring income stream from their successful business with a single lump sum that has to last them the rest of their life and fulfill their plans, their dreams, and their legacy goals for future generations? Those people are perhaps more vulnerable than they have ever been before. And as I've said, you may have even heard me say this, I don't care if you've made a million dollars a year for 20 years, it's a good chance nobody's ever handed you a $20 million check at one time before. And that changes everything. It changes your collectability, it changes state tax exposure, to a hell of a target. I talked about that in my book. Not only are you a bigger target 
for those who sort of perceive it and sort of follow those types of steps. But you have your own issues because you've graduated to a different kind of wealth. You're replacing income generated from a job or a business. In a sense, the income has been amortized for you over time. This time you have to sort of derive your income from assets. And it's a bit more of a passive type of experience. And so if you get that wrong, or you have a big chunk taken out of it, because someone takes it out from you, you're left in a very vulnerable position, as you say, that's a great point. And really, my concern with many of the folks that I work with right now, who are business owners, all over the country is as they are entering this phase of their life, where if they're lucky enough to have built a business that has a significant value, the biggest threat to those folks to a business seller is the business's buyer. If that buyer isn't as cute and smart and hardworking as my client and can't make that business run as effectively, or if, God forbid, you close a business sale on the cusp of a national disaster like we are currently in the middle of with COVID-19, and that person bought a beautifully functioning well-built, well-run, well-organized business that grinds to a halt, they are going to be looking with their own team of lawyers to get out of that contract or to find some purported act or omission or concealment that caused them to fail, and they're going to want a refund. So as far as I'm concerned, when I work with business owners and we sell a business, all sales are final. That's a great point. And one I hadn't really thought of either. Once you've sold the business, and that's why it's important to not only understand the money behind a transaction, but also the personalities behind the transaction, because if something goes wrong, you're certainly going to be left to deal with it. So as we sort of took a survey, a little bit of risk management, and unfortunately, the imagination can run wild. And at the same time, you can't insure against or protect against everything. There are some tactics that you can use to manage that risk or mitigate it a little bit. Generally speaking, I think sort of the first step is identifying the risks. And many times when people get to me, it's often too late. What do you see as some of the tactical missteps? You have a big list of them. And I know this is the first one, which is, I think, the most important one as well, is really the failure to act or to act after the tort has been committed or after the risk has been identified but has already taken place. Where do you see that in real life? I think that that's a very important point, and that failing to act is on multiple levels. When I talk about asset protection planning, whether it's teaching other attorneys or explaining it to a group of 100 doctors or talking to somebody like you and sharing at least my practical experience in this area for almost 20 years, what I say is that asset protection has three layers. The first layer is what I call clean living, compliance, following best practices, following the law. Let's not do stupid things that get us sued in the first place. And let's prevent those around us from doing those things as well, to the greatest degree possible. The second layer of asset protection that, again, you must be proactive about, and all of these things can only protect you if you act before the crisis happens, is insurance. Let's be properly insured for as many risks as we can reasonably identify and pay for that we can reasonably anticipate are going to potentially be a problem. And let's make sure that we have all of the right kinds of insurance at the right amounts. 
So many people are insured, but they are underinsured. I talk to millionaires several times a week who consult with me who have a half a million dollars or less, for instance, on their home and automobile insurance policy as a very basic thing. All of these folks I'm talking to should have an umbrella policy of seven figures, ranging from two to 10 million, depending on who they are and what their net worth is. So that's one very basic thing in terms of using insurance the right way, having the right amounts and having all of the right kinds of insurance. And that means having all the right specialty insurance. And then finally, the third layer of asset protection is having legal tools in place that make your assets legally distinct from each other and from your personal and professional liability. Now, all three of those things have to be done before there's a problem. And I am routinely contacted by people, and I heard, just heard you Hayes, say the same thing, that many times by the time people get to you, it's too late because they already have some sort of a tort or a claim or actual or constructive knowledge of a claim. And that makes all of the things that we could have done, especially in terms of legal planning, it turns those things from conventional, legal, ethical planning into fraud if you act after the lawsuit or after the claim or after the accident. But unfortunately, I turn away several people a month who contact me in exactly that situation. So that timing question is probably the most important issue of the day and of our conversation for your listeners. If you're serious about what you've built and about keeping it, you have to act before there's a problem where your options are the greatest they're the most predictable, and they're the most cost-effective. Does that make sense the way I'm saying that, Fraser? No, absolutely. And from my perspective, coming out of the trust company world and dealing with lots of financial advisors, it's one area that I think is a real hole in the financial planning motif that I see when people get advised around sort of financial planning and what do I need to retire or live going forward or to maintain my lifestyle. The asset protection discussion is something that I don't think a lot of financial advisors are comfortable with. And what you laid out as far as those big three, that by itself is really the big issue spotting question. And I think it's and I wouldn't call it malpractice, but I think it's a real deficiency not to bring that up as part of the overall condition of one's finances and of one's lifestyle going forward. Well, it's funny you use that phrase malpractice because I know that among your audience are not just successful people, but also a number of advisors. And for instance, folks who carry the CFP designation do have a professional responsibility to discuss asset protection in exactly the same way that they're supposed to discuss estate planning and tax planning. So it absolutely can be a real professional liability for those advisors who are not least saying to their clients, have you thought about taking steps to securitize this wealth? So you're right on both counts. And advisors routinely, as you said, do overlook that. I was just going to say, it relates to the CFP. The language that they're using around self-policing is getting even stronger, too. I've just read that they're really talking about being a fiduciary in all cases. And so for those advisors that are out there listening, I think it's important in a sense to brush up on some of the, I guess the word holistic, not my favorite, but I'll use it here. Some of the holistic components of planning, it's important. And asset protection is definitely one of them. And it certainly relates ultimately to estate planning as well, because as you're looking at risks to mitigate, oftentimes that goes to the next generation. 
Absolutely. And fortunately, what we saw during the last recession, we saw a lot of people that had spent a lifetime, 10, 20, 30, 40 years or more in some cases, becoming who they were, achieving that American success story, building businesses, building financial legacies. And those folks planned only for their deaths and not for their lives. And they were startled when they realized when the duress came that the estate planning that they did was going to be worthless because there was no money to actually make it happen. We are making future plans for money that we haven't paved a road to travel to the future on, if that makes sense. Sure. One of the things that I see that comes across my desk that is often the most alarming is what I would call cocktail party asset protection, where someone hears something from someone who's done something, and it's a very narrow fragment of the big three that you mention, but people extrapolate that they're completely protected if they take that one step. Again, I think your analysis on that as it relates to sort of coming back to the big three and having a larger process around asset protection is really intelligent. But what have you seen on that front? An example that I hear a lot and that makes me snicker is the idea of, oh, well, I put my wealth in my spouse's name and that should keep me freed up. Or, oh, I'm investigating putting my wealth overseas, which, as you and I both know, opens up multiple cans of worms if you try to go that route. What else are you seeing that would constitute sort of incomplete or poor advice? And that brings us back to sort of the list you mentioned of the fatal flaws of asset protection, as I call them and as I've written about. And what you just said, the gifting strategy, the DIY strategy that you talked about is actually specifically on my list. And I've written articles that are as bluntly titled as, no, giving assets to your spouse or other relatives isn't really asset protection. So let's talk about that one as one of the fatal flaws since you brought that up. What we see there, and DIY planners, folks who've been to some kind of a convention, who've been to a financial freedom seminar in Vegas, who went to a medical convention in some fancy resort to like Pelican Hill, and some guy comes out and he sells a kit in many cases. And that kit will involve an LLC. And in some cases, they will sell a book that has strategies like gift assets to your spouse. So what is the problem with doing that? We hear this a lot from doctors, especially. Oh, I don't own anything. I'm not worrying, worried about getting sued because my wife owns it all. Let's walk through the tactical mistakes with that. Number one, if you are going to transfer assets, community assets, whether they are truly community property, as we have in some states, or whether they're just marital assets, if your intent is to transfer those assets to your spouse, you need to do more than just putting their name on the title. So just because you purchased the home in your wife's name doesn't mean, for instance, that it's not community property. So in many cases, when folks actually want to do that, there's formal conveyance of title, there's a post-nuptial agreement, there's a property transmutation agreement. So there's very significant legal documentation that expresses an intent to make that property the sole and separate property of the other spouse or other party. The most common thing we see is that somebody gives it to their spouse. In some cases, they also give it to children, or in the worst cases, they give it to other relatives like a brother-in-law or somebody who's holding it for you in quote-unquote constructive trust. 
So let's talk about how that blows up on people briefly. Number one, if you transfer those assets to your spouse, then it is really their property. They can divorce you, and that property will not be part of the marital estate that gets divided. So for instance, if you put your house in your spouse's name and go through the formal steps that I mentioned to make it legal, and then you get divorced, that house isn't part of the marital property that gets divided. That's really their separate property. And you can't go back to court and say, Your Honor, we were just kidding. That was a scam to avoid a creditor. So that's issue number one, is that once you've done that, that really is their property. And not only can you lose it in a divorce, but it is then simply exposed to that person's personal liability. So you have maybe taken one person's name off it, but the other person's name is still on it, meaning that it is exposed to their own debts, bankruptcy, lawsuits, and everything else. And they can choose to leave that property to anyone they want. Don't assume that you're going to inherit it back at the end of their life. Now, those are just a few common examples with that one specific issue as to how it blows up on people and why it often doesn't work. We can walk through some of the others on the list. Another common one is thinking you're not rich enough to do the planning. And this is very common with people who are in the mass affluent group. And there are lots of people who I work with who are worth, quote unquote, only a couple of million dollars, and they go up seven, eight, nine figures in net worth. They're all over the board. But a lot of folks who often contact us too late, say, well, I never thought I was rich enough or I had enough money to worry about this. Or their advisor says, I didn't think they were rich enough to do the planning or I didn't think they'd spend the money. And I will tell you that most of my clients are seven and eight figures in net worth, but the $2 million net worth guy, his $2 million is never more important to him than the day that it is threatened. That's for sure. And $2 million, if people have to live off of that, taking a fraction of that away, even a small fraction, that makes a gigantic difference in lifestyle. Absolutely. And that $2 million or $3 million or even 4 or $5 million person can be wiped out by a single lawsuit, a car accident, all the different bad things that can happen, a business lawsuit, a med mal claim. There's an infinite list of horrible possibilities out there. We never know what's going to happen, hopefully nothing, but unfortunately that's not likely. Those folks can be wiped out by relatively routine events. Now, my $30 million client can take a $3 million lawsuit hit. They will complain about it until the day that they die, and they will never forgive the person who did it to them. But their lifestyle isn't going to change. They're still going to retire. Their kids are still going to go to the same schools they planned on. They're going to keep their marriage. They're going to keep their house. So this is counterintuitive to the public and to advisors, people who are on the lower end of the mass affluent, high net worth demographic, actually need planning more than some of their higher net worth counterparts. Of course, somebody worth $10 million or more should do asset protection planning. There's no question about it. But it can be a life-changing difference to somebody who's worth a million or two million or three million. So that's right. where that mistake of thinking that your success doesn't merit some time, money, and effort is a mistake. Another thing that we commonly see is relying on traditional estate planning. 
consumers don't understand the difference between irrevocable and irrevocable trusts and many other legal tools, but that's the biggest one. So many times people will come to me after they've been threatened or have suffered some kind of accident or exposure or claim at the referral of another advisor who sends them to me and they'll say, well, I'm here, Frazier wouldn't shut up until I called you, so I'm calling you, but I think all this is covered because all of my assets are in my trust. My home is in there, my non-qualified taxable investment accounts are in there, the LLC that I own that owns the office building is in there, so I'm good. And I say, wait a minute, are you talking about your revocable living trust or what people call a family trust? And they very proudly nod and say yes. And I am often the first person to explain to them that that particular tool provides no creditor protection from your liabilities during your lifetime. And again, there's a disconnect there between the death planning and the life planning. We see other common mistakes like what I call too many eggs in one basket. Sometimes people do have a good tool. Maybe they'll set up an LLC, but they'll put everything in it and use it as a trash can. And it will either not have legitimate business purpose or one dangerous asset in that LLC will unnecessarily jeopardize a safe asset. This is a big problem with LLC kit sellers. They'll sell you an LLC. They tell you to put your non-qualified savings and investments in there. And then in many cases, they'll do something as Bush League is telling you to put the rental house in the same LLC. Oh, I sort of think back to law school, and there's a reason why taxi cab companies have an LLC around each cab, because it's likely that cab is going to get in an accident, and they don't want the fleet of 99 other taxis to be reachable if something bad goes wrong. So... That point makes a lot of sense to me. And then when you have income producing assets lumped together with assets that have other liability, why would you do that? If you can sequester assets and the liability from each other, that seems like a pretty smart thing to do. Absolutely. And look, a lot of this is simply penny wise and pound foolish planning. The folks that are doing this planning and selling this planning have an attractive sales pitch. You don't need to do all this fancy stuff and complicated stuff that the lawyer who does this every day was telling you. All you need to do is buy an LLC. That's an attractive answer to people, but unfortunately, it's not a correct answer. Another common mistake we see is dragging liability into your plan. And I know you've seen this one. Oh, boy. Think about every doctor, business owner, CEO, founder, who has their personal vehicle and their spouse's vehicle leased or purchased in the name of their business as one common example, because they're taking that tax deduction through the business. That is one of the most common things that business owners do is that they put their personal vehicles into their business, either the lease or the purchase, and write off the car. And what I explain to my clients is your CPA is absolutely correct on the tax planning portion of that, that there is a tax benefit to doing that. My question to you is, is it worth jeopardizing your business, your golden goose, your income producing asset that makes all of the rest of your lifestyle and wealth possible? And for the cost of that tax deduction, to link the possible liability of a fatal car accident to your business. And many people, when the tax tail wags the dog, they just aren't thinking about that. And all it takes is one problem, one accidental death, and it's over. 
you can't necessarily insure all of that away, even if you were to try to structure it correctly. So a point well taken there. Another thing that we see is using unproven, poorly structured tools or scams like friendly liens. So this is where your brother-in-law sets up a Nevada LLC and that LLC files a lien against your home. (laughs) And there has never been an exchange of value. But you read a book or got a pamphlet that said, hey, if there's a lien on your home, then it's less attractive to creditors, for instance. And that is absolutely true when there is a legitimate lien where there has been an exchange of value. So sometimes I act as a fraud consultant for folks who are in lawsuits who are looking at someone who has gone on a fire drill and moved assets or has put planning like this in place. And the litigation team that's on the other side, the plaintiff's team, will say, hey, can you look at some of this planning and what they've done and help us figure out if it's legitimate and defensible or not? And we often see that when we ask a few questions about, well, who owns this LLC? What is your relationship to that person? I see that they filed a $1.4 million lien on your home. Can you show us where the exchange of value was? When did they make that transfer of that $1.4 million to you? Was there any exchange of value in exchange for the lien or is the lien in itself fraudulent? And sir, I'm going to remind you that you are under oath under penalty of perjury in your answers. It's a bad place to be with a bullshit plan. What happens if you've been led down that path and someone goes to you or to me or to somebody else and says, I think I got bad advice. I implemented it. How do I unwind it? If they're reaching us before there's a crisis, most things can be fixed. So that's the good news. There are some things that we can't fix. So if you've done something egregiously stupid, like signing all of your assets over to a trust and putting some nameless, faceless person in charge of it and giving them full power as the trustee, well, then there are sometimes things we can't fix. But most of these other things we can do better. So for instance, where we have a client who comes in and has that friendly lien recorded, we put that asset in the appropriate legal structure that will actually defend it and we get rid of that lien. So yeah, there are things that can be done to fix these things. But again, that assumes that there isn't a specific crisis yet. And of course, if there is actual or constructive notice of a claim, then their hands are tied and they're frozen in time with whatever they came with. And in that case, what I do since I can't do any planning for them, is I refer those folks to one of two of my colleagues somewhere who do different things, one of two different types of lawyers. I either get you really good, expensive defense counsel, or I refer you to a really good bankruptcy attorney, because those are the two (laughs) options. You're either going to be in a lawsuit or you're going to be bankrupt. Well, and this, that just underscores the point that if you do things correctly ahead of time, you're going to be able to forestall a vast, vast majority of these things as they pop up. Absolutely. And I think the final mistake that we'll talk about is insurance. Now, you heard me say at the beginning of our conversation that I think that insurance is one of the three core layers of asset protection, probably the most important one in terms of predictability and in terms of value of cost per dollar. I mean, even if the only thing that your liability insurance does is catch the bullet on the legal defense costs of a lawsuit, it's still 
certainly done its job. And it's even better if it has coverage that's deep enough to cover the award if there is an award actually entered against you. But that being said, there are a couple of problems with insurance. Number one, it is naive to think that you can insure yourself against anything and everything that could possibly happen in our big wide universe by writing a couple of checks a year. And it's also naive to think that anything and anything is covered no matter how much it costs. We understand the insurance company's business model, which is to take as much premium and pay as little claim as possible. Difference equals profit. It's not a complicated model. <laughs> and look, I believe in insurance. I make people buy insurance. I don't sell it, but I probably am responsible for more premium dollars being spent than some people who sell it for a living because I make people buy it and I make people understand that, for instance, if you own a business and have employees, you need employment practices liability insurance. If you run a medical practice, you need data breach and cyber liability insurance, and that applies to most businesses. You have all of these different things, but there are gaps, there are limits, there are exclusions. And so we need to be sure that we have a plan that goes in place beyond the insurance and that you are properly insured and understand what exactly that means. You understand the details of your insurance. And that is a complicated science of its own that many advisors and most consumers can't adequately answer. So you need to work with a really good multi-line insurance broker that understands things like consent to settle clauses and hammer clauses and can talk to you about shared limits. So yes, Dr. Jones, you do have a MedMal policy with us and you do have a EPLI, Employment Practices Liability Insurance policy with us, but your EPLI policy was added as a rider and you only have $50,000 worth of coverage for an employee lawsuit. Now, Fraser, you're an attorney. If you get sued on some kind of EEOC claim or a harassment claim or a discrimination claim, how far is 50 grand going to get you in litigation? Probably about two consultations. That's it. <laughs> I mean, it also underscores, I think, the idea, too, that insurance needs evolve. I tell people that certainly for life insurance, but especially for property and casualty and multi line liability insurance, that it's useful to get a review frequently. And maybe once a year is maybe too frequent, but it's not, I don't think that's out of the realm because people's needs evolve, businesses change. I'm going through it right now with a building that I work with. COVID-19 has caused everybody to rethink what is an insurable risk. And we're all looking saying, well, is a pandemic covered? Well, probably not. Is this force majeure? Maybe, maybe not. These are the types of things that are important for people to understand that it's worth having a look. And as you said, finding that experienced advisor on the insurance side is vital because there's no way one person can become an expert in all these things. And you also get the benefit of the wider experience that they're seeing across different situations. I couldn't agree with you more. Look, I've been doing asset protection planning exclusively for almost two decades. I'm not an insurance expert. I understand I'm well-trained enough and have done enough research to be able to make a list and ask my clients if they have certain kinds of coverage that I know they need and how much of that coverage they have. And then I am smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to give them the details 
on the insurance part and to get them to that expert who actually does that every day. I couldn't agree with you more that having that expert counsel in that area and that relationship with an expert broker is very, very important. And it will make the insurance that you have that much more effective and complete. And also it'll ensure an efficient use of premium dollars. I mean, one thing that I hear people complain about is, oh my gosh, I spend so much for insurance. I said, if you really sort of pencil this out a little bit more clearly and in a more detailed way, you can be better insured for the things that are more of a risk for you with the same amount of dollars if you just go through a bit more of an analysis. And again, you mentioned that before, and it's something that I think is important for people that they've got to get away from the idea that if they quote unquote, just buy property and casualty or commercial insurance that they're taken care of, you really have to go through another couple levels of analysis to be well situated. And look, it's not a sexy expense. You can't see it. You can't drive it. You can't put it on your wrist. You hope you don't use it. (laughs) It's not like a safe that's sitting in the corner where there's something tangible there. And I think because of that, there's often a psychological disconnect for many people. And then the costs, again, you mentioned this really important issue, Frazier, and I'm glad you brought that up. Premium dollars. Why don't people buy more insurance? Well, it's simple because they don't want to pay for it. They're not seeing the value. They haven't been educated on the value of the coverage that they need or the potential exposure. And I'll give you a real specific example. Briefly, I recently went through this exact same conversation with a very successful cardiologist with a net worth that's approaching eight figures. He's been in practice for many years. He's built a big practice. He owns the practice. He owns the building. And I went through and did his personal asset protection planning at the request of his estate planner who sent him to me. And as part of our review process, I started asking these risk management questions about his business, knowing that the business needs to be well protected also as the source of his wealth. And I found that he didn't have DNO coverage, which is directors and officers coverage for managerial malpractice issues. They didn't have EPLI insurance, which is the employment practices liability insurance for employee lawsuit type claims. He has 18 full-time employees. He didn't have rack audit insurance, which covers payer audits for Medicare and Medicaid. And again, these are medical specific examples. We found that he didn't have an adequate personal liability umbrella policy on his home and his cars. He had half a million dollars in coverage, but has two teenage kids driving his cars. So that coverage should easily be at least $2 million would be the very bare minimum, probably more. And we discovered six or seven different things that needed to be improved. General liability insurance, We got him additional data breach and cyber liability insurance. Again, he had a $100,000 limit if his practice got hacked or if he lost HIPAA information or if he was hit with a ransomware attack, which those things are all real things that affect American business owners every day. Most people are unaware of them until it happens to them. When we added all this up, when I sent him to an insurance agent, the doc came back to me and said, Ike, I looked at all of these recommendations that you made for additional coverage, and do you realize that this coverage is going to cost me an additional twelve dollars to $15,000 a year? And so that was his resistance point. And I said, that's fabulous. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you do realize that the insurance broker has quoted you 
five different areas of insurance at about a million dollar limit each that you were previously either uninsured or underinsured for. You now have this $5 million cushion between you and the street on these different issues. And I said, for 15 grand a year. And I said, and I know that might sound like a big number to you, but if you have an exposure on any one of these five issues that I just rattled off, the day that I put you with defense counsel, the first check you're going to write as a retainer is likely going to be ten or $15,000. The same cost as the premium for having all of those issues adequately insured. No, it's penny-wise pound foolish to think otherwise. I run into that too, where people say, oh, I don't want to pay it. And I just say, given where you are now and the level of wealth that you have, it's foolish not to do things like this because the penalty for getting hit with the unknown here is so severe that it could wipe you out. That's a good object lesson. One other comment, you talked about cybersecurity insurance, and it's something that is always nagging at me. And frankly, it's one of those things that you hear and see more and more about, but it hasn't really hit yet. It's my impression that we have not had the 9-11 of cybersecurity issues yet. And for some of us who wear pointy hats or tinfoil, that type of thing, the idea that the electromagnetic pulse could knock out a bank or uh, large-scale disruption of financial services or a theft of information or HIPAA liability. They're isolated cases that are out there, but I'm of the belief that cyber insurance now, it is the best time to get it because I think the insurance companies have limited experience underwriting it and it's very new. And I encourage people, especially for those who are significantly involved in data transfer, et cetera, that it's something to really consider. And look, sometimes it's something sexy and exotic, like you mentioned, like data transfer. And sometimes it's something much more mundane, like you own a chain of restaurants and people in your restaurants have been card skimming. That's right. No, it's taking high-tech tools and doing something very simple with it that may be the real problem. And we never know where that's going to be. If you're in a business that handles confidential information, that handles HIPAA-protected information, that handles privileged information, that handles identifying information like social security and account numbers. If you take payments in your business, whether it's retail or any other method and you're responsible for handling credit cards and routing numbers and things like that, you are certainly in the highest risk category, but many other kinds of businesses need this protection too as we said, for a variety of reasons from ransomware to data loss in the event of an EMP or some other coordinated attack. And you mentioned sort of the tinfoil hat thing euphemistically. I know you were kidding. But there are a lot of people who are unaware that these attacks on us as a country are ongoing and continuous, and the government regularly defends and defeats attacks on our financial infrastructure, banking infrastructure, the stock trading infrastructure, the power grids. All of these things are under continuous attack. Sobering, to be sure. So let's take a quick detour here. We talk about sort of living clean, having good insurance, and then putting legal tools in place. One of the areas that I focus on is the use of trusts many times in the estate planning world to shield people from taxes or otherwise provide structure for sort of well-thought-out distributions to the next generation and other constituencies. How do you think about trusts as part of the framework that you use for asset protection for clients? And 
what are you using in your practice to help people take advantage of that? Trust is a big word. So first, we have to make sure that, first of all, I do use trusts in my own planning. And we use them extensively, and we use many different kinds of trusts. We use revocable trusts for estate planning purposes as a core estate plan. We use irrevocable trusts to securitize specific assets and get them out of the name and title of their owner and make them legally distinct from that owner. We use other trusts to transfer wealth or to receive income. We sell assets to trusts that don't have any assets, and then the seller is repaid from the income stream the assets produce, all things that you're familiar with that I know you've done and used and talked about. So yes, trusts are great, but it's got to be the right trust for the right purpose in the right jurisdiction with the right parties. And unfortunately, that checklist of having all of those things lined up and having those stars line up is a little bit more complicated than many consumers and unfortunately than many planners understand it to be. Again, that brings us back to when we talked about the fatal flaw. One of the fatal flaws was garbage can planning where you have a good tool, but you use it inappropriately. So again, we use personal tools for personal assets and business tools for business assets. And trusts certainly do play a part in that. You asked about the tools that I use. For instance, when we're talking about asset protection planning, there are really three kinds of trusts. They're purely domestic trusts. They're purely offshore trusts. And then there are domestic trusts that are created under the laws of a jurisdiction that allows a self-settled spendthrift type asset protection trust, which are also registered in a foreign jurisdiction and which can be converted. So those are the three common forms that you see. And which one is appropriate for you is really a fact-specific question. I know that some of the trusts that you use offer specific benefits because the laws of the jurisdiction that you use offer specific safe havens in specific circumstances. And it goes to a larger question. And I think we're talking about very specific, oftentimes powerful, but sometimes cumbersome tools. The real interesting thing to me is the coordination of your advice on the asset protection trust world with, say, the estate planning advice that may come from you or come from another attorney or another advisor. You mentioned it before, sort of the idea of deducting personal assets through a business, that that opens up a different can of worms on the liability side of things. It's almost obvious to me that the coordination of expertise is as important or almost more important than the individual tools in some ways. How do you help clients manage that? And I think we're both used to being the quarterback in many cases, but also maybe being part of the offensive line or the tight end in other cases. How do you help clients think about that? And as it relates to the relationship with the client, what has worked best in your opinion? It is important, first of all, that the tools are coordinated. We don't want to have a death plan with no idea of how we're actually going to make that plan come true. We also don't want to do a life plan, an asset protection plan, without having good planning that will make sure that people for whom you put all this labor in, your family, your heirs, the institutions you may want to benefit, we also want to make sure that we know where it's going. So both of those things are very important. The way I do it is that we first make sure the client has an estate plan, and then we ask some questions about the estate plan to make sure that it was competently drafted, to make sure that it reflects the client's current wishes and current life situation, 
we routinely talk to people whose trusts are outdated and whose trusts need to be updated because of changes in their life, in their assets, in the age of the beneficiaries, in the people whom they appointed as trustees. Maybe you put your brother-in-law down as a guardian and a trustee, but three Thanksgivings ago, you had a fight at dinner and you haven't spoken to him since. (laughs) Is that the person who should still be on your trust? Have you named somebody as a trustee who doesn't have the energy and legal capacity and financial knowledge to make the decisions that you wanted them to? Have there been changes with the beneficiaries? Has, for instance, one of your beneficiaries been married or divorced? Or do they have their own professional liability? And have you outlined instructions in your estate plan that are appropriate for protecting them and protecting what you leave for them from their own future divorces, bankruptcies, and lawsuits, as one example? Every successful man in America that I talk to that has an adult daughter is worried about, quote, the creep she might marry someday. (laughs) (laughs) You don't even need to put it in quotes. (laughs) And this is something that I hear particularly from men who are worried about another man taking what he worked his whole life for and left his female child. That is a common conversation in our office, at least with these folks. So these things absolutely do need to be coordinated. We also talk about asset protection not being done in a vacuum in the lawyer's office and that it requires the combination of legal planning, tax planning, insurance planning, and financial planning. Because all of these things present identifiable sources of risk that are unacceptable for me to the people that I'm supposed to be protecting. If my client works his whole life, builds an empire, and loses a significant portion of it to estate tax, we failed. If he loses it to a lawsuit, we failed. If she loses it to market losses because she was poorly advised on what she had and what her asset allocation should look like and all of those financial details that are outside the scope of certainly what I should be talking about as an attorney, we failed. So all of those things need to be coordinated to make wealth predictable. Coming up on an hour here, one big threat to wealth that is always the most difficult, I think, to mitigate is the concept of overspending and the idea of using trusts and other vehicles to put structure around wealth so that people who inherit, especially the wealth who didn't build it or who don't have the financial wherewithal or the education or the inclination to budget and produce spending plans that allow them to outlast their wealth. That invariably leads to very difficult discussions. Many times when you spend the asset, the remaining assets have to work twice as hard to try to replenish. These are things I think we probably agree on, but what are you seeing in your practice and what do you do to try to help educate the rest of the family so that they're able to enjoy the wealth yet at the same time make sure that it lasts? Again, this goes back to the most recent part of our conversation, which was me in different ways and a little facetiously talking about protecting heirs from themselves and their own future potential liabilities. So I think that your comment on budgeting, spending, and financial management, the skill set of the beneficiaries varies widely from family to family and even varies widely within families. 
So we know that if there's a family with three children, one of them is going to be a stick juggler, one of them is going to be a CEO, and the other one's going to be somewhere in between. <laughs> and they're going to have very different levels of financial acumen. And so in that sense, yes, having a well-managed, structured trust and trustee structure as part of that is certainly important to the longevity of the trust, its assets, and to seeing the trust makers' goals come true for their family. I couldn't be in agreement with you on that anymore. And yes, we look at different strategies. We look at when they should take, how much they should take. Should there be benchmarks where the trust makes distributions, like when they achieve a certain level of education, or if there's a life event, like the purchase of a home, or a marriage, or the birth of a child. So in some cases, people do build those things in. In other cases, they leave them to the discretion of trustees who can make discretionary distributions. Of course, for families that want to motivate their children, their adult children and heirs, we have often used things like matching strategies, income matching matching strategies, where the trust will make a distribution equal to or proportionate to whatever that person earned on their own. So all of these things are possible, but you have to have the right team to do it. And that often means not naming your brother or your sister or your buddy who you play golf with in that position, which many people do. So the more complex your trust structure is and the more complex your wishes are, the more control you wish to retain, the more help you're going to need in both setting it up and administering it after you're gone. And that's where certainly the qualification and the interest and capacity of the trustee is huge. And in the corporate trustee world, that's where sometimes it's a great way to provide some help in those more complex situations. Have you seen all of those things that I rattled off in your own trust work? Yep. No question about it. And even more complex. And then I've found too that where it works best, where there's the less potential for conflict within siblings and within family members, et cetera, many times that's when you get in the softer space of family governance and you have larger discussions ahead of time so that expectations of wealth are transmitted to the different people who are going to be affected by the planning ahead of time. And that level of communication early helps make the acceptance of the estate plan or sort of the rationale behind the why of the estate plan. It makes things a lot more smooth and reduces the potential for conflict over communication issues. I'm sure you've seen situations where the estate plan is sort of unveiled to the rest of the family upon the passing of the matriarch or patriarch. And there's all sorts of baggage with the rest of the family members and why aren't I part of the business or why did they get more or less or were treated equally, but I did more or this guy's a drug addict. How does he get that type of thing? That's where I think sort of the communication of head of time on all of these things, it's less important what the details are, although that's important, but the why and the understanding of why the plan in place, there's at least some context from which people can understand why it was put there. And as you said, these things can get complex very quickly. Absolutely. I mean, we have seen what happens when the six-year senior at USC inherits an apartment building. <laughs> yes. In fact, I've seen something almost pretty close to that <laughs> recently. And it hasn't worked out well. They all sorts of strange behavior. But I, we're coming up on an hour here. We have covered a ton of material. And I think this is going to be really useful for people to think about not only their wealth, but how to take care of their wealth and understand how to 
protect their wealth, not only from spending and the things we just talked about, but also the predators that may be out there and to protect against the unknown. So I appreciate your being able to take some time with me. How do we keep track of your whereabouts and your writing and how can people find you if they wanted to learn more? Well, I know that my name is going to be in your description and everything else. So they'll be able to find that there and you can Google me and you'll find lots of articles and other things. My primary practice presence is goes under Pro Asset Protection and my website is proassetprotection.com. I'm also on the usual places like LinkedIn and Twitter where I cover a variety of different issues. Most of them are related to wealth and asset protection, but I generally also comment on other things that are legal in nature or financial in nature. But again, if you're looking for information specifically related to the topics that you and I have covered today, I have a huge archive of articles on everything we talked about and much more at proassetprotection.com. Terrific. And I'll have everything like that in our show notes as well for our listeners. Ike, thanks again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.